because I want to share with you basically a presentation that I gave at the Shepherds Conference, uh, and there were several hundred pastors, pastors that were a part of uh, this particular session. It was entitled Counseling the Remnant, Bringing Biblical Truth to Bear in a Hostile Culture. So obviously a major theme of the Shepherds Conference is focused on the remnant of believers alive and active in our world today. Now, we're going to be all over your Bibles, so you might as well grab them, all right, or your electronic Bibles. We're going to wear one of them out, either your battery or your pages, one of the two, this morning. So grab your Bible. Let's go over to Romans chapter 11. This is where we want to begin in Romans chapter 11 to help you understand as Paul talks about the remnant talks about the remnant. And the Apostle Paul's argument in the book of Romans includes the theological rationale for why God has not rejected Israel. In his argument, he cites the example of God's admonition to Elijah. Remember, after Elijah had been on the mount with prophets of Baal, achieved that tremendous victory over all the prophets. And this is the first example in human history of cutters because these prophets were cutting themselves to show their sincerity before God, all right? And they're cutting uh, or before their gods to try to get their gods to act. And of course, Elijah, God provides him with a great victory over these prophets. And um, But then after this is over with, Elijah went down into the valley and found a juniper tree and sat down on his juniper tree and a lot let uh, despondency and discouragement and eventual depression overtake him where he basically said, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one in Israel that's been faithful to you. Oh God, how did you let this happen? How did you let me be the last person to stand for you faithfully? And God's response to that, and, and Paul picks this up in Romans um, 4, or Romans chapter 11, verse 4. He says, I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And of course, what he's doing is he's quoting 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 18. And then Paul continues in verses 5 through 10. And he says, in the same way, there has also come to me at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it is written. And this is Isaiah 29, verse 10 and verse 13. God gave them a spirit of stupor, Deuteronomy 29, verses 3 and 4. Eyes to see, uh, not, and ears to hear, not. Down to this very day, says David, in uh, Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Now, I want you to know that as Paul talks about this and cites Isaiah and then Deuteronomy and then David there in Psalms, as bleak as things seem to appear, in the, the hostile culture in which we live, God always has, always has had a remnant 
of his people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And what I want to do, admonish the pastors and the elders and the deacons that were there at the Shepherds Conference, it is their responsibility to care for the souls of the remnant in a hostile culture that is under God's judgment. We're called upon to minister to them. We're called upon to protect them. We're called upon to admonish them, to encourage them, to help them. The Apostle Paul instructs you and I, and we urge you, brethren, he says, admonish the unruly. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Admonish the unruly, encourage the the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with everyone. Now, this is supposed to happen through the public ministry, that is the preaching of the Word of God, and through the private ministry, that is counseling of the Word of God. And in fact, using his own ministry as an example, Paul instructed the Ephesian elders as he passed the mantle of ministry over to them to use the two main tools that they have in ministry. One is preaching and the other one is counseling. Listen to his careful instructions when he says, okay, I want you to do as I have done to you among the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 20. Listen to what he has to say. He says, preaching... In, in other words, he says, um, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. In a sense, preaching brings the word to people and counseling brings people to the word. Then later on, the Apostle Paul was also very invested in counseling throughout his ministry and even states later on in verse 31 Acts 20, 31, therefore be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Notice how he said, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So his personal ministry of the word of God in the lives of believers was very intentional. It was persistent in spite of and because of the hostility of the world against those first century believers. Now, I never accepted the excuse from pastors when they would say to me, I'm not a counselor. Never accepted that as an excuse. Because I want to tell you, I am a pastor trapped in a counselor's body. Okay? That is who I am. You want to know me? I am a counselor. I mean, a pastor trapped in a counselor's body. That's who I am. Uh, But I never accepted that. Why? Because their Lord was a counselor. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 says, um, you know this, and his name shall be called Wonderful Preacher. Oh, wait a minute. Counselor. (laughs) Counselor. Counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Why? Because real pastors will work with the personal troubles of believers, especially when the flock is being hammered with the constant assault of the world. Family members, co-workers, even those that are so-called Christians. One way our Lord's under-shepherd ministers to the flock is through the public preaching of the Word of God. That is vital. It's critical and it's necessary for the flock's welfare. But Scripture also tells us that you must care for the individual souls of the flock. That means working with them on a personal level. 
as needed. And again, Paul becomes our example to follow when he says in uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now, you don't have to be a genius at hermeneutics. What is the emphasis of that verse? Every man. Three times. One verse. Three times. One verse. Basic hermeneutics tells you the emphasis is upon each individual person, not just collective groups of people. Now, I have family members that have been involved in fire and rescue. They're highly trained in saving people's lives. Now, what would you think of a fireman who stands outside of your housing development and on a blow horn uh, provides public instruction on how to survive a fire, yet is unwilling to enter the structure that you're living in in order to save your life personally? <laughs> you know that that's not a serious fireman who's doing his job. No, if your home is on fire, you want a fireman to be able to enter your home and rescue you personally. And even though the, the public instruction on fire safety is valuable, real under-shepherds are willing to work individually to help people whose homes and lives are on fire. They're willing to do that. Wasn't that the point of Christ's parable in Matthew 18? We just read from that in the first hour. What do you think, he says there, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if he turns, and if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over 99 which has gone astray. In this way, it is not the will, is it not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish? So a critical part of a pastor's responsibility is to personally instruct individuals in their congregations who are straying and while under the threat of hostile culture. Now, we've got to, in a sense, get back to an Acts 2020 vision of the ministry. That view of the ministry because people need personal help from shepherds. So what I want to do in the brief time that I have with you, I, I want to focus on some of the most common areas where believers need personal counsel today, given the broader hostile culture. And I want to provide you with some vital ministry tools that you can have in turn to use and help them biblically. Uh, this will be one of the hardest aspects of the ministry that is helping them. Um, even today, I would rather preach publicly than counsel because counseling is much harder. Um, you're holding them personally accountable for change when you're counseling. They, they'll resist you in private conversation, but rarely are you going to have somebody up, stand up in the middle of public discourse and say, I disagree with that. Occasionally, you may have <laughs> rancorous person like that, but not very often. In counseling, however... They'll come across the table after you because they're not happy with what you're sharing. And all you're trying to do is represent what the Word of God says in relationship to how they should deal with their life. Preaching is a monologue. Counseling is a dialogue. And that's what makes it hard. Dialogues can be very difficult. 
Sometimes they take unpredictable directions. In preaching, you plan what you're going to say and you deliver it. In counseling, you can plan what you're going to say and get everything derailed by the unexpected revelations that come out in that counseling. So we have to be prepared on several different levels. Now, the question then comes at this point, who is the remnant today? <laughs> well, in Scripture, they are the true believers in the Lord whose faith has survived great adversity and remained true to the Word of God, even though they live in a hostile world and continue to have other self-proclaimed Christians falsely accuse them. Those are the remnant. These fake believers that false accuse are often referred to in Scripture as wolves in sheep's clothing, false teachers. Paul even warned the Ephesian elders there in Acts 20. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. There is a considerable amount of perversity going on in a broader evangelical world today. And all of this calls us to be wiser in being under shepherds of God's flock. Being a truly biblical pastor in our age requires men of humility and yet at the same time backbone. Now my focus is simple. Um, it is to highlight three common cultural problems that cause Christians uh, to be um, hostile to biblical help and counsel and provide you with a biblical way to address some of those problems. And now, before we begin, I think it's going to be necessary for you to understand that biblically, you cannot counsel an unbeliever. We've talked about this in Joiners before. Um, if you're a faithful pastor... All of your counseling is going to come either directly or indirectly from Scripture. At best, the Bible is a set of suggestions for an unbeliever. It is only one option among many options out there in the world from an unbeliever's perspective. And Scripture demonstrates that the only thing that you can do is evangelize the unbeliever, not counsel them. Because God's word is not their final authority. It's not. Even if you were able to get an unbeliever to follow good biblical principles of communication, successful marriage principles, practical points on dealing with depression, what have you created? Well, since they can't really follow those principles from the heart in order to honor and glorify Jesus Christ, what have you created? You've created a really good self-righteous Pharisee. That's what you've created. So let's take a look at the first thing in, of the three that we want to highlight here, and that is counseling believers who are suffering. Counseling believers who are suffering. Your flock will need godly counsel as the, as the world and even many evangelical Christians will grow hostile towards them. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you haven't had the opportunity, you need to listen to James Coates' um, message on Wednesday night at the Shepherds Conference because he talks about this verse, and he talks, takes it apart and puts it back together again 
And, and of course, James Coates was a Canadian pastor who was actually sent to prison because of their stand, very similar to the stand that we have had taken here at Grace Church in regards to COVID. Now, when Jesus appoints the 12, he warns them of what standing with him will cost. In Matthew 10, if you want to take your Bible, you can go over there. Matthew 10 and verse 17. What will standing with him cost? He warns at the beginning, the 12, where he says, but beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. This is verse 17 and 18. Then drop down a few verses to verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Listen, if you're not hated by somebody, you're probably not standing for anything. You're going to be hated. And if you're a type of person who lives on the basis of the fear of man and the approval of man, you don't want that at all. You want everybody to be happy with you. But that's not a genuine believer. A genuine believer is focused, riveted on the fact, I want Christ to be happy with me, whether men are happy with me or not. Christ has got to be happy with me. That's what they live by. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, I mentioned that earlier. It says, our job is to encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. The two words, encourage and help, speak to those who are suffering for various reasons. The first term, encourage, the Greek term actually means to alleviate sorrow or distress and provide emotional strength for those who are discouraged or hopeless or those who have really lost heart. The second term, help, help the weak means to take charge of, manage, or assist the weak, the delicate, or the sick. So you need to prioritize encouraging and helping people who cannot help themselves. They will need practical help and insightful biblical counsel in navigating the wicked things that happen in this world. One scholar on the Puritans wrote this. He says, one of the most significant Puritan expositors of a a theology of suffering was John Flavel of Dartmouth. Flavel experienced severe suffering within his own lifetime with the loss of three wives, children, his parents, rejection from the Church of England, and the continued persecution from state officials. Now listen to what Flavel says, quoting him. Suffering, then, is the breeding ground of spiritual fruit so that God, as it were, plants the believer in the soil of suffering to produce godliness, end of quote. Wow. He plants the believer in the soil of suffering in order to produce godliness. So what do we need to do here? Well, one of the first things, we have to teach them good practical theology for life's daily challenges. 
Good doctrine is cornerstone of a joyful Christian life. And the reason why I have to say that, especially during the Shepherds Conference, is we have people from a variety of different churches, different denominations coming here, and there are far too many churches who claim to be Bible-believing, and yet they have abandoned good doctrine that upholds the superiority and the sufficiency of the Word of God, and they have substituted it with cultural doctrines that uphold the superiority of psychology. They teach Jungian psychoanalytical psychology with books like Wild at Heart rather than teaching biblical insight into human depravity and God's ability to bring lasting change. Theology was never intended to be dry and detached from life. It was intended to be practical. It was intended to be insightful. And Christians today need more applicational doctrine, not less. They need to think God's thoughts after him. It's no mistake that the majority of counseling demands in the church come from people that have weak theological backgrounds. They have no resources to handle depression, fear, anxiety, emotional swings, and on and on. Why? Because they think that theology has nothing to do with real life, and it's only for those who are trained in the fine art of theological musings. That's what they think. To them, doctrine is useless to the problems of everyday life. God gave the believer good doctrine so he could live wisely, humbly, joyfully, so he could rightly critique the shifting sands of popular thought. Such doctrine is the mooring that, in a sense, stabilizes the soul during the storms of life. Sanity demands doctrine. Do you hear me? Sanity demands doctrine. Our counsel has to be filled with, with teaching on good applicational doctrine. Modern psychology is opposed to it. Christian psychology mostly ignores it or depreciates it. But a good biblical pastor has to teach their counselees solid theology, harmar theology, soteriology, anthropology, Christology, angelology, ecclesiology, eschatology, and on so that they can see how they relate to everyday life and see how that, those thoughts working out in life answer the practical problems of life. These are the very grounds for sound thinking in a world that's gone mad. You can see a world that's totally divorced from any kind of doctoral thought. We live genuinely in a post-Christian world. There was a time in which actually secular thought somewhat mirrored what the Bible said. That's no longer true at all. And the further they get away from any kind of moorings in relationship to good doctrine, the worse things get. The more bizarre things become. Now, how does Scripture then instruct us as under-shepherds of God's flock to deal with people during suffering? Take your Bible. Let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 5. The book of 1 Peter was written to Christians undergoing severe persecution at the hands of Nero, which was, you understand, one of the most wicked of all the Roman emperors. He tortured Christians, fed them to lions, fed them to wild dogs, covered them with pitch, tied them to poles, lit them on fire while still alive just to light the, his gardens around his palace. That's what Christians did. We know that's historical fact. 
And Peter is writing here in 1 Peter 5 in the midst of the Neurodian persecution. If you don't understand the Neronian persecution, you'll have a hard time understanding 1 Peter. But then he concludes the book when he says, Therefore, I exalt you, verse 1, exalt the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing not under compulsion, but willingly according to God, and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those who are allotted to you, but being examples of the flock. What's the implication there? That you are willing to go through the same suffering that everybody else in the flock is, and even more so if that be the case. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's really interesting. He's talked about suffering here and helping people during times of suffering. And then when he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You trace this all the way through the New Testament. You see that what always precedes glory, what always precedes glory is humility. That's always the case. All right. We saw that when we studied John chapter 13, didn't we? I mean, several years ago when we went through that, we saw how Jesus, after washing all the disciples' feet and actually constantly referring to the fact that Judas is there and is going to betray him. And then he feeds him the morsel at the beginning of the Passover meal, which was a way to treat the honored guest, knowing full well that Judas was going to go out and betray him. And the rest of the disciples could not tell the difference between them and the one disciple who was going to betray him, not by Jesus' attitudes or the way he treated him, treated him the same way as he did the other disciples in this way. In other words, Jesus, in a sense, humbled himself to what Judas was going to do. And as soon as Judas left, John 13, it says, now, Jesus says, the Son of Man is glorified. Now, why does he say that? Right as soon as Judas, Judas walks out, Jesus turns to the rest of the disciples. Now, God is glorified, and the Son is glorified in him. Why does he do that? Because the greater humility there is, the greater glory God gets in our lives. The greater humility in our lives, the greater glory God gets. You see this. And this is exactly what Peter is saying here. This is what should be happening with the under-shepherds of God's flock. So we have to teach them good practical theology for life's daily challenges. Number two, you got to teach them a biblical theology of protection. Uh, they're going to face you're in, many in their flock that are in harm's way. The the train of abuse is headed towards Christians, and they're standing right in the middle of the track. And it becomes the pastor's responsibility to encourage them and help them, to teach them a practical theology of protection. It's good to help believers know that they should flee from those who wish to really do them harm. Now, why do we say that? All right, this is where we're going to use your Bible, so grab it real quickly. Let's go over to Proverbs 22. Proverbs chapter 22, and we're interested in verse 3. It says, a prudent man sees evil and hides, but the simple pass on and are punished, is the idea. Uh, verse 5 says, thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked, 
he who keeps his soul will be far from them. In other words, staying away from danger. Proverbs 27 and verse 12, very similar statement. Proverbs 27 and verse 12, where it says, A prudent man sees evil and hide. The simple pass on and are punished for it. And we know this from biblical history, right? David fled from a jealous rage of King Saul trying to kill him. 1 Samuel 21 and verse 10 says, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. In fact, David's own thoughts are recorded in Psalm 56. And someday, in the next couple of years, we'll get to Psalm 56. <laughs> and we'll see that. Another example is Joseph. Joseph fled from Herod with Mary and Jesus because of imminent harm. In Matthew 2, verses 13 and 14, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, and he took the child and his mother while it was still night, and he departed for Egypt. And then in John 10, in verse 39, we find Jesus. He fled for murderous intentions of the Jews as they were about to stone him. It says, therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded them. John 10, 39. The Apostle Paul, the same way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 32 and 33. The Apostle Paul knew that the local authorities were out to seek to do him harm and even possibly put him to death. And it says, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Artus, the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. So what we're saying is this. Good biblical and pastoral counselors Help those who stand in harm's way. They help them find a place of safety, escape the evil that they know is coming. But in addition, a caring pastoral counselor also ministers to their fearful souls. So which brings us to number three. The third thing is teach them the grace of courageous boldness. Now, that's purposely worded, the grace of courageous boldness. Why? Well, you need to teach the benefits of God's grace to your flocks when they're facing hardship and adversity. It is God's grace that will make a difference in their lives. Let's go back to the book of 1 Peter. We were there just a few moments ago, but let's go back there in chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. And we can pick up in verse 18 where it says, Servants, be submissive to their own masters with fear, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are crooked. That's an interesting Greek word, that word crooked. It means um, it's scolios, where we get our word scoliosis, like the scoliosis of the spine, where the spine is crooked. Scolios. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are crooked. But then he says in verse 19, for this finds favor. You see that word favor? If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unrighteously, 
For what credit is there if, in verse 20 he says, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure. It's not to your credit, in other words. But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this finds favor. There's that word again with God. Now, why is that so significant? Those two phrases in verse 19 and then in verse 20, both use the same Greek term, charis, which means, in a sense, uh, it's a singular noun, which means is often translated grace. That's the word. This finds grace with God. This finds favor with God. This finds grace with God. So what does it mean to find grace with God? Well, the context here is very informative because the apostle Peter is speaking to the early Christians concerning unjust suffering, and he's instructing them on how our Lord is especially attentive to those who endure hardship at the hands of wicked men for the sake of righteousness. Notice what he says in verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this finds favor with God. What does that mean? That means God's grace says, I am with you. That's what that means. God's grace says, I am with you. Now, listen, the knowledge of having God with you during times of adversity, hostility, hardship, and false accusation, the knowledge that God is with you causes fearlessness. It causes courage. It causes boldness in a Christian. There's the effect. If God is with you, then no one can successfully take a stand against you. No one can prevail against you. Now, the world's approach, and many Christian counselors, in dealing with stress of adversity and hardship is to try to make people be calmer. They use Prozac, wine, cognitive behavioral therapy, yoga, hypnotism, extended vacations. <laughs> but those will never produce fearlessness. Never. Never produce courage and boldness. Courage can only come from the presence and the approval of God on your life. Seeking favor with him and not with men. That's where courage and fearlessness comes from. Our, our society today is, is hostile to Christianity. And we need more bold Christians. In addition to this, what about counseling believers with unrepentant guilt? Let me go back to society again. Our society today also is trying to sterilize guilt from our culture. While a great majority of people who I've counseled with with severe forms of depression have a significant amount of unresolved guilt from their past. Psychologized Christians deny biblical sufficiency frequently and accuse the church of being guilt mongers. Or they'll say that church discipline is a form of horrible shaming. You have to help them teach them the biblical concept of guilt. Most people in a church today believe that the sensation of guilt is a toxic experience. You look up on the internet, and you look up the term guilt, and all of a sudden all these articles start to appear, like uh, uh, guilt, the, ho the hostile monster, 
Guilt will kill you. Guilt is a toxicity. You'll hear title after title like that, as if guilt is the problem. So they do everything that they can to assuage their feelings of guilt. They'll cauterize their conscience by repeating behaviors over and over again until they don't feel guilty any longer, kind of like taking allergy shots. Paul warns you and I in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. A seared conscience is a person who has sinned so repeatedly over and over again that you don't feel it anymore. You don't feel it. Does that mean your guilt is somehow gone if you don't feel it any longer? No. Others will use drugs, psychotropic and illegal drugs to numb their conscience from guilt. Some will use blame shifting on others, their environment, their parents, past tragedy, or a difficult spouse. Some will say it comes from a toxic culture of shaming that caused the awful experience with guilt. Still others will say it comes from an inferiority complex instilled within them the first five years of their life, and they spend the rest of their life trying to compensate for it, trying to find superiority or what later became known as self-actualization or self-realization. Then others will immerse themselves in self-gratifying pursuits and entertainment in order to somehow blunt the sense of guilt. But biblically, the theological concept of guilt is not a feeling. Do you hear me? It's not a feeling. It's a fact. A good definition of guilt is a legal liability and culpability to punishment. That is the definition of guilt. A legal liability and culpability for punishment. That's guilt. Negative feelings are a result of the known fact of guilt. So someone can be guilty and not truly feel guilty because their conscience is not informed. Or someone could feel guilty about something that is not wrong because their conscience is trained to an unbiblical standard. That's not false guilt. False guilt is like saying a false fact. That's an oxymoron, sort of like jumbo shrimp or military intelligence or <laughs> plastic silverware. All right, those are oxymorons. Or our cruel kindness. Scripture does not teach the Freudian concept of false guilt. You'll find that many Christians' authors refer to it as if it's a biblical concept, and it's not. But you need to teach them that guilty feelings are not the same as the biblical fact of guilt. Personal experiences or feelings of guilt is a warning light that goes off when your conscience is bothered. In this case, the experience of guilt is not your enemy, it's your friend. It's like having a red light. You've heard me use this illustration before. Come up on the dashboard of your car, right? What do you do when the red light comes up on the dashboard of your car? You look at it and said, look, isn't that a cute little app? <laughs> or you pick up a hammer and you smash the red light. No, 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 you don't do that. That's what psychology does. Psychology wants you to pick up the hammer and smash the red light. No, you don't do that. The red light is telling you something's wrong. Something's wrong. You pull the car over, you get out of the car, you open the hood, you take a look at what the problem is. 
That's it. What's going on inside of me? Why is this guilt bothering me? It should throb. You're ministering to people who have been indoctrinated in a wicked culture that think that guilt is an archaic, obsolete, and toxic concept. That type of thinking has radically changed their view of good theology. If there is no good in personal guilt, then great theological concepts and terms are unnecessary. Terms like sin, there's no guilt, there's no necessary for sin, or repentance, or contrition, or atonement, or restitution, or forgiveness, or redemption. All of that is meaningless if there is no guilt. Wow. In essence, Jesus Christ is unnecessary to our culture and even to a lot of people who call themselves Christians. And the cross, then, is a great example of personal self-sacrifice, but nothing more. So the experience of guilt that comes from a biblically trained conscience really is a blessing to a believer. It's not a curse. It shows them that things need to change. All you have to do is study Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. But let me race on here. Counseling believers who fail to accept personal responsibility. And this is closely associated with the concept of guilt in our culture. Let me read to you what John MacArthur said in his book, Vanishing Conscience. He says this. He says, if no one is supposed to feel guilty, how could anyone be a sinner? Modern culture has the answer. People are victims. Victims are not responsible for what they do. They are casualties of what happens to them. So every man failing must be described in terms of how the perpetrator has been victimized. We are all supposed to be sensitive and compassionate enough to see that the very behaviors we used to label as sin are actually evidence of victimization. Victimism has gained so much influence that as far as society is concerned, there is practically no such thing as sin anymore. Anyone can escape responsibility for his or her wrongdoing simply by claiming the status of victim. It has radically changed the way our society looks at human behavior, end of quote, radically. So this is an age-old game that you, that you will encounter repeatedly in, in counseling. Depravity has also sought a way to excuse itself. It has gone to elaborate means to remove personal accountability and responsibility. You'll have many in your own congregation who will constantly claim victim status, and they will consider you cruel if you try to help them to understand that along with accepting personal responsibility comes also the freedom of a guilt-free conscience. That's foreign to our culture today. We can see a wonderful example of that in the book of Ezekiel, and if I had more time, Ezekiel 18, verses 1 through 29, we'd go there. But in this particular case, God basically says God will hold each generational, each generation responsible for their sins. It's not uncommon today for younger generations to accuse older generations for their troubles. God will not accept this. God says in Ezekiel 18:4, the soul who sins will die. That means each generation is responsible for the choices that they make. Later on in Ezekiel 18, in verse 20, it says, the soul who sins will die. The son will not bear the iniquity of the father, nor will the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So what are we saying? Accepting full and complete responsibility for wrongdoing is a biblical character quality that is lost to our psycho-informed 
church attenders today. God has not accepted the self-designated identity of victimhood in order to excuse sinful attitudes and behaviors. This is why people are in such miserable shape. Secondly, there's no such thing then as generational curses either. One writer put it like this, a generational curse is believed to be passed down from one generation to another generation um, uh, due to rebellion against God. If your family line is marked by divorce, incest, poverty, anger, or other ungodly patterns, you're likely under a generational curse. The children of alcoholic fathers frequently suffer neglect and abuse as a direct consequence of their father's sinful behavior. Moreover, the descendants of those who hate God are likely to follow in the steps of their forefathers. Well, that, all of that is just a contemporary way to excuse personal responsibility the same way the people of Judah did in Ezekiel 18. And God hates that kind of rationalization. He sees through it and he condemns those who attempt to use it. He condemns them and they, will not, they believe that they can get away with their sinful behavior by claiming to be a victim of what previous generations have done or other people have done but God holds them personally accountable for their choices that they've made and uh, regardless of how and what other generations have done. Third, God's ways are always just and man's ways are not right. That's what he says in Ezekiel 18, 29. And herein lies the heart of the problem. With those who are hostile to those who live to bring honor and glory to the Lord in this world, Man believes his ways are right. Every resistant person who is rebelling against the word of God believes his or her way is right. God's ways are wrong. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, sin and falsehood are twin brothers. Holiness is truth, but sin is a lie and the mother of lies. Believing God is wrong and you are right always leads to personal destruction. So Thomas Watson even made this statement. When God lays men on their backs, then they look up to heaven. God smiting his people is like the musician striking upon the violin, which makes it put forth melodious sound. How much good comes to the saints by affliction? When they are pounded, they send forth their sweetest smell. Affliction is a bitter root, but it bears sweet fruit. So as under shepherds of God's flock, we are called to address the wounds of people with the truth and the gospel and cause them to look heavenward. Take your Bible. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It is our great joy here in our church as well as in joint heirs to see the restoration of our dear brother, Bruce Bednar. And um, let me read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to pick up here in verse 6 where Paul is addressing the Corinthian believers who in 1 Corinthians had disciplined a man because he refused to repent. 
Verse 6 says, Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather graciously forgive and comfort him. We learned about that in the first hour. Lest such a one be swallowed up by excessive sorrow, therefore I encourage you to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm. In other words, this brother in the Corinthian church had repented. And now it was the church's opportunity to turn around and reaffirm their love for him upon his repentance. You take some of those uh, Greek words apart, and basically Paul is saying, now that this brother has come back, throw a party for him. All right? Reaffirm your love for him. 